Good morning, everybody. It is good to be here with you. It really is. Uh, this morning, I want to preach, and then I want to pray for us, and then I'm also going to read a contemporary parable that I think sums up and solidifies what we'll see in this Mark and text. So I say that as a prelude so you can just be ready for when I start reading a parable at the end. It's pretty good. It's got a demon in it, which isn't what makes it good, <laughs> but it's a great point. We have been in a series on the gospel according to Mark for over a year now, and we've been walking very slowly through it. And I think that the letters and the conversations that I'm receiving from you guys says that this gospel has been changing us. It's been changing me. It's been good to walk through it at the level that we have. Today, we come to that pinnacle moment that Mark has been leading up to the entire time. Um, from the very onset, from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, we have had these little seeds dropped, foreshadowing that it's all leading to this moment. So I want to ask you two questions because we're talking about the cross today. What is the cross? What does it mean to you and me? What does the cross mean to us? What is this symbol when we look at it? What does it mean? When you think of the cross, what immediately pops into your head? Do you think when you see the cross, you say, okay, this is, where, this is where Jesus died for my sins? Or do you look at the cross and you say, this is where Jesus teaches me how to live? Not necessarily opposed to one another, but you can see how they're radically different. Does it immediately conjure up the idea of this is where Jesus died for my personal sins as my personal savior? Or does the cross say, this is where Jesus teaches his community to live? You and I have received a very interesting teaching throughout our lifetimes, a kind of Christian teaching that's been very heavily focused on the cross. And I think rightly so, fairly so. It's a kind of teaching that has, has taught us that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all at the cross. It's, it's the place where we have the wonderful cross, it bids us to come and die. We've just sang that song. We have, oh, precious is the flow, and we mean the flow of blood that makes us white as snow. Jesus has died for our sins. This is very common in the way that we've worshiped and taught. And what's the number one main message when we see the cross in that way? Humans are sinful, therefore we are unholy, and Jesus is perfectly holy, and since he dies on the cross as the holy and innocent personal savior, I no longer have to go to hell, but I get to go to heaven. Why? Because I believe that he did that. The cross is a symbol of what Jesus has done to pay for my sins. He stands in my stead or in my place. The main challenge of the cross then is a question. Do you believe that this happened? Yes or no? And sometimes Christianity has been taught to us that way. The big thing is do you believe it happened or do you not believe it happened? But what if Jesus did not just die on the cross to get you to believe that he died on the cross? It feels a little bit myopic, doesn't it? 
all of this story and Bible and narrative and the big pinnacle moment that Mark has been leading all the way up to has been done to get you to believe that it was done. Okay? Maybe there's more to it than that. What if he died on the cross to show us something about how to live? It's not to neglect that we believe it happened or it was done. Perhaps that's just the very most basic square one level. And that all of the richness of what happens in this story, especially on the cross, has been given to us to teach us how to live. Remember how Hebrews chapter 1 says that when we look at Jesus, we are looking at the exact imprint of God's nature? Hebrews chapter 1 says there has, there has been the most definitive, revelatory, full revelation of God in Jesus, more so than any other biblical text, more so than anything a prophet ever uttered. He has spoken to us, God has spoken to us in many ways through the prophets and through the Torah and through the scripture, in many ways for a long, long time, but never has he spoken to us so specifically and clearly and fully as he has in Jesus, his son. The apostle Paul says that God himself is who we see in Christ. So when we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at the picture of holiness. We're looking at a picture, the, the fullest picture of God's character, which means we're looking at God's holiness in Jesus. And that reminds me, and it should remind us of that early command, that early instruction God gives us, all his people, way back in Leviticus. He says, you shall be holy because I am holy. He says things about himself and us. I'm a holy being, and my people are going to be holy like I am holy. So if we're seeing God in Christ in his full essence, then when we look at Jesus, we're looking at the picture of holiness. I think right in that moment already, we might be challenged a little bit. Not totally thrown off our game, okay? I mean, Jesus, we will very readily say, was a sinless being. He didn't commit any infractions, transgressions. So there is a piece of that that's true. But has that been the major thrust you've seen in Mark? What would you say, those of you who have been studying Mark with us for some period of time? Has Mark emphasized and re-emphasized and re-emphasized over and again Jesus' moral purity? or Jesus' self-sacrificing nature? Which one is the emphasis of, the, of all of the Gospels? What do the biblical writers want us to see in Jesus? Certainly, his sinlessness is huge. Is it the main focal point? Jesus seems to prefer to spend time with sinful folks, and that's not what we would expect from a holy God. In fact, that's why many have rejected how would, if it is God himself or even his good representative, why would he want to spend time with sinful people? His willingness to be in the world seems very odd to the people around him, and I think still to us today. Even wrong, he makes this rugged commitment to be with the people that he shouldn't be with. He makes a rugged commitment to be with people he ought not be with, and not just to be with them, but to be for them, to seek their well-being. 
unto kingdom realities. He's trying to help them and restore them and teach them the kingdom when he should be killing them. Because that's what a holy God does to unholy people. I thought that a holy Christian community is one that understands the boundaries of love. You understand where love can be granted and given, and you also know that there is a line that doesn't tolerate the evil of other people. We would never allow a demon into our church because it might take something valuable from us. We would never allow a demon to come into our home because it might steal something of worth from us. We would never allow a demon into our own lives because it could, with its power, take our very life. No, instead we call down the power of God to stand and to take a fight, to take a stand and to fight. And why do we do this? Because God wants us to. We just, we just know that. A powerful and holy God wants us to fight, to destroy, to eradicate this is who he is, we say. Or maybe we just assume. But then we look at the cross. And I don't mean we just look at it briefly, glancing and pass by it. Looking at it just long enough to know that it saves me from my sins and now I can get on with my day today because I feel better about my eternal future. We actually stop and we look at the cross just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and the men and women in that day needed to fix their gaze upon it to be healed. Some of you remember that story. John uses this language. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. The point being, we need to look at this man. Behold this man upon the cross. Why is he there? What's going on? And what is, the, what is he trying to do? Is it just to get us to believe that he did it? Or is it something much more? I want you to pray with me and then we're going to jump right into, the, into Mark chapter 15. Lord, have mercy on us, please, today. Forgive us for thinking about this crucifixion as a simple necessity to get us into heaven. Merely to be believed, but not to be governed by. Our prayer today is that this cross would literally shape us that we would become a cruciform people, co-crucified with you. And we're never going to live this way if you're not helping us. So in that, we turn our faces to you with desperate need for you as we see your people throughout all of history doing. We have a genuine trust in your ability and your willingness to love us in this way. And so we thank you immensely. And we, and we declare, and I'll declare on behalf of our community here, we love you too. Oh, how we need you. Amen. Mark 15, verse 16. Here we go. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company or the cohort, the battalion, your Bible might say, something like that, of soldiers. Okay, so they get together. The praetorium is the governor's mansion. And they're hanging out there. And this cohort or battalion or whatever is about, in the Greek, it's a tenth of a uh, legion. A legion is five, 6,000 people, so you're looking at five to 600 
Roman soldiers. We know there's probably 70 to 80 Sanhedrin Jewish religious experts of the law. And then you have the crowds that are there for Jerusalem, or sorry, the Passover festival. This is a big crowd. Big crowd, and think of the nature of the crowd. Power. Power, 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 power. I mean, it's just soaking with power. Hundreds of Roman soldiers, the most powerful religious leaders in the land. This is it for planet Earth. These are the big boys. There is no greater power than, than this context. Verse 17, and they put a purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him in the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him, or they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple robe, and they put his own clothes back on him. They let him out to crucify him. They'd always take him outside the city wall and crucify him right by the road that's coming in as a warning to people who are coming into the city. Don't mess around in this town or this is going to be what happens. So they take him out to crucify him. This is a hard scene for us to witness. It's hard to stomach this. You do a little cursory glance into Roman history and what crucifixion was. This is a brutal, brutal way to die. You're kind of drowning in your own blood and suffocating. Cicero, later on, after the fact, will ban crucifixion from the entire kingdom of Rome and, and, and teach. He's got a couple famous lines, but one of them is, is he tries to tell all of the people of the Roman Empire, I want you to do everything you can to try to eradicate the memory of crucifixion from your mind because it's so nasty. So even Rome later on changed and stopped crucifying people. It was just brutal. And that's what's happening here. And Mark has woven in tremendous irony. I'm sure many of you caught it. It's a great ironic moment. Alanis Morissette would say, isn't it ironic, don't you think? Okay. You have this purple robe that's being forced onto Jesus in mockery, but he actually is the real king who would be worthy of wearing a robe. They put a crown that's meant to shame him, but it's actually appropriate. He is the king. He has uh, them bowing down to him, which is an appropriate posture, but it's in mockery, in jesting. Hailing him as king, and as we'll see in a second here, he's got this board nailed above his head that says, Hail, King of the Jews. All of these things are just soaking in irony as Mark is kind of giving you a wink and a nod and saying, yeah, they're actually doing the right thing. They're doing it for some pretty odd reasons, though. Again and again, they took this powerful, divine king and creator of the entire cosmos, and they bend him over and beat him in the head with a long wooden stick, as hard as they can, and then spitting saliva from their mouths onto him to make him dirty and low. In the mind's eye of the world, Jesus was an idiot who thought that the most powerful of all the gods was actually supporting his ministry. <laughs> Can you believe this fool? He thinks that the most powerful god in the world is actually on his page. And look at him. Boom! Another strike to the head, blood in the eyes, saliva on his shoulders and in the wounds of his back that they've ripped open with whips. 
He shows up naked. Notice how they strip him twice publicly. To put the purple robe on, they first had to strip him down. To take it off and put his other clothes on, they had to strip him down. This is common. They did this to humiliate the prisoner, and they humiliated him good. Maybe we could believe in what he has just said about the kingdom of God being at hand. If we could just see a little bit of that kingdom's power coming through, why don't you just come down from the cross? Do the smart thing. Do the logical thing. Do the responsible thing. You don't sit up there on the cross hanging there like a weak fool. Jesus had become an object of disgust to them. It was just disgusting, just pathetic. I want to circle back to that point, the point of Jesus and and the way that he disgusts us. But I want to do a little bit of a detour here. I think it's very related, but it is a side note idea. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. That's your NIV. Other Bibles might get it a little closer to the Greek, which is proskuneo, which is worship. It literally just says, falling on their knees, they worshipped him. Falling prostrate, they worshipped him. We know from the context, they're not truly worshipping him. <laughs> that's, that's pretty clear. Or if that is, then we, we worship God very wrong. We should be doing terrible, violent things all the time or something. You know, They're, they're not really worshipping him. But they're presenting themselves as worshippers. This really grabbed me this week, thinking about this, praying about this. They postured themselves correctly before the true king, but they did so for the wrong reason. And it makes us, this part of the gospel, and this is, this is, all, this is the gospel, all of Mark's teaching. This part of the gospel makes us wonder, do I ever posture myself as a worshiper for the wrong reasons? Willfully doing activities that look like worshipful, Activities like bowing down like these guys are, but not doing them to actually truly pay homage to God, doing them to get some kind of personal gain. Sometimes we're lonely, so without any real intention to give ourselves to God and his community and fellowship, we present ourselves as worshipers so we can kind of fix the loneliness problem. Sometimes we feel guilty and ashamed and anxious about ourselves or our future or circumstances or something like that. And without any real intention to listen to God or even care what he says, we will, we will do the worshipful thing and we'll do the sinner's prayer and the church thing that will help to assuage some of that internal anxiety and guilt that we feel. It helps to bring us some relief from the burden of shame, etc. But I'm not really interested in real worshiping God. Looking closely at these soldiers and the Jewish elite that are totally surrounded here in the, in, the, in the moment, knowing that they don't really think he's their king, consider the motivation behind why they fall and bow down. On one hand, they're using this posture to condemn a fellow man, right? <laughs> okay, kingy, kingy, I'll worship you. By condemning a fellow man, what do you do? You elevate yourself. They get a great personal gain. They, they have personal gain of feeling better about themselves by presenting themselves as worshipers. Do we ever enter into the Christian community for the purpose of feeling better about ourselves as compared to the rest of the world? I look worshipful and holy 
but I'm really just trying to make myself feel better. On the other hand, by mocking him in this way, they can fit in with the intelligent and the good crowd. They can fit in with the way of the world. They'd be on the right side of history, if you will. They can totally do that. The personal gain here is received in social benefits, being identified with the right kinds of people. They obviously don't truly see Jesus as their king, but by going through the worshipful motions, they fit right in with the hundreds of other soldiers and religious power brokers and everybody who really truly matters in their society. By going through the motions, they can fit in and be associated with the right kinds of people. In 1995, a guy named Stuart Townend wrote a song that expresses a courageous truth. And he says, we all do this. In the, in the hymn, in the worship song, he, he expresses this sense that we actually all in our lives posture ourselves as worshipers, but we're actually not worshiping God. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my own mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. That hymn drives us into that place of reflection where we say, huh, am I ever actually sitting there in the crowd with these people going through these worshipful motions, but I don't really mean them. And the truth is, when I look at Jesus, I think he's a sissy. And I think he's weak sauce, and I actually think that I know how to live better than he does. He, if Jesus was in my reality, he would get it a little bit better. We're reminded that those scoffers sometimes include us. Well, that's the bypass. Come back to this idea of Jesus becoming a disgusting person to us. Is Jesus an object of disgust to you and me? This is where we have to get a little uh, historical literary. I don't know if you remember, but way back when we started setting it up, I wanted you to know that Mark wrote this gospel for the church in Rome. Mark is writing to Gentiles. And there's lots of places in his, in his writing where we have evidence of that. The way he, even in this text, he'll assume that we know the names of, of um, two guys, Rufus and Alexander. He assumes that we're Roman readers, okay? And think about it. If you're Mark, an evangelist, okay? You're one, of, you're one of Jesus' disciples, and you want a Roman crew to believe in the story of Jesus. What's some of the stuff you're going to be worried about doing? Well, you're going to want them to see the great hope and love of Jesus. You're also going to be worried a little bit about offending them. You know that they're Romans, okay? And they were very proud to be in a, a Roman. Proud to be a Roman. They lived in the greatest country on earth in his day. This is a nation of freedom and independence. If you're a Roman citizen in the first century, you're not ashamed of that at all. This is prime time. This is the middle of the Pax Romana. You guys remember that in school. Yeah, 200 years. It means peace in Rome, Pax Romana. For like 200 years, you have experienced, there's this period that long. You're right in the heart of it here in the Jesus story. But you're in the heart of the great peace and tranquility of Rome. 
They've kind of stopped a lot of their expansive warring. There's lots of economic flourishing. Things are good. People are able to worship freely, etc., etc. They looked to the great heroes. You can see this in the writing. The great heroes who went off to war, giving their blood and sweat and tears and hopes and dreams to defend their country. They were proud of their nation. They were proud of their service. You can easily imagine their great generals and senators and even emperors saying, be proud of the security that you have provided to the world. The Roman Empire is safe and peaceable and secure because of you. You are your hope and freedom. This would be the language of Rome in that day. You will be able to fulfill your destiny as long as you never give up the fight. You have the power. You have the power would be a great speech from a Roman leader in his day. That's the sentiment. So Mark had a very difficult task of showing these patriots that their nation was not everything they were thinking it was. Mark surely knew that this part of the story was going to be very difficult for his readers. But he holds true to his vocation as an evangelist and as a truth teller. And he gives the brutal detail about how the Roman culture treated a perfectly innocent man like Jesus. He doesn't pull out any stops. He tells you all, every Roman reader who was reading that was wincing. Ooh, we did that. Ooh. We did that too. Ooh, we did that? No, that's got to be exaggerated. There was a major gut check going on. And I, I need to tell you, I share some of Mark's pain as a pastor in the United States of America. This is very difficult for me. My grandfather fought in the war. Virgil 13, he was an airplane mechanic. My family history, my national history, they're both built on stories of heroism and great sacrifice, loving people who offered their lives in order to secure a nation where we could exist in peace. And I know that the message of nonviolence is very difficult for us to stomach. It's extremely difficult for us to stomach. How else are you going to stop Hitler? How else are you going to stop the terrorists? How else, what are you going to do? This is where my head always goes. What am I going to do if somebody's pounding down my door and they're going to kill my women or my, I only have one woman. <laughs> Whoa. That's true. Uh, just, just Allie, just my Allie. You're going to kill my children or my woman. That's a hard reality to face. And when you look at that and you say, gosh, what would I do in that scenario where my life or the lives of those that I loved were on the line? What are you going to do? Well, in every single case, every case, I have understood an answer that is very simple and logical and it does not float in that hippy-dippy world of utopian idealism. This is my answer. Yes, we are willing to love and respect our human beings, our fellow human beings, up to a point. We will. But then there is a line. And if they cross it, then we have to redefine love quickly. 
We must protect. We must defend. We must never allow ourselves or any other innocent human being to be unjustly murdered on a cross. No real Christian would ever die on a cross. A true believer who is empowered by the God that we know so well would get down from that cross and he would stop the violence of Rome once and for all. Get down from the cross so I can actually believe that you're the God I worship. Mark is showing his Roman citizens that it is the values of their heritage that led to the mockery and the brutal murder of Jesus. By including these details about mockery and beating and scourging and spitting and parading Jesus around in humiliation, Mark is carefully and lovingly reminding his readers, I think, that they are not actually Roman citizens. They are aliens in a strange country that does this kind of stuff to people. All of the New Testament wants us to understand ourselves as citizens of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. The language is always, this isn't your home. These values are not your values. This isn't the land that God prepared for you. You belong to a higher order of existence, far greater. So don't allow yourselves to get wrapped up in something that makes you think you belong to a different kind of nation. There is one Christian nation in all of eternity, and that is the kingdom of God only. Don't allow yourselves to be fooled into thinking that if we just kill enough and just work enough, then we can secure safety and hope for ourselves. No, Jesus' statement is always, I am here. The kingdom of God is at hand. You will be with me. I believe that Jesus is an object of disgust to us Americans often. I don't think many of us would be very stoked about establishing Jesus of Nazareth as commander-in-chief. Love your neighbors is inspiring and warm. Yes, we've got to love our neighbors. Love your Nazis. No. No, that is dumb. That is not what the cross is about. The cross is about my personal sins. It's not about a way of life. And then we read, well, you must bear this cross, which Jesus says to his disciples. If you want to follow me, you must, not, not, you must believe that I did it. It's you must bear the cross. Take up your cross and follow me, he said to Peter. We race past that. We would have to be totally, totally transformed by the renewing of our minds if we were going to be able to love our enemies in the way that Christ did. It would take a total renewal of your mind to be able to love your enemies in the way that Jesus Christ did. Okay, let's finish the story. We re-enter in verse 21, Mark chapter 15, and it comes and it comes and in comes this mysterious traveler from Africa. 
It just happens to be passing by. This is pretty interesting. Verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus, he was passing by on his way in from the country or from the fields, and they forced him to carry the cross. Rome was the occupying power, so they could set, uh, a soldier could set his spear on your shoulder and then say, hey, here's your job for until I tell you you don't have to do it anymore, you know. So that's kind of a bummer if you're traveling and you've got the festivities of the Passover festival and so forth, you're hanging out, and now you're working for free for Rome, and you're going to have to take up the cross of a criminal. (laughs) This isn't like, oh, cool, I'm so glad I could be a part of what's going down right now. This is, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? That's very interesting, isn't it? Who was the first Simon in the story of Mark? Simon, who became Peter. And Peter was told, you're going to have to bear a cross remember? And Peter was like, what? you got to be kidding me. That's ridiculous. Here comes a different Simon who actually carries the cross. We won't go too much. You can think about that a little bit more. Well, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots, or they rolled dice, if you will, to see what each would get. That was their right as soldiers. When they crucified somebody, they got to take whatever the dude had. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, that's on the board above his head. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled their insults at him, shaking their heads, oh my gosh, saying, so... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, why don't you come down and save yourself? You know, parentheses, if you're so powerful. Come down from the cross and save yourself. Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Notice they even acknowledge that he is able to save other people. He's powerful enough to save other people in a way no other human being has ever done, but he can't even save himself. (laughs) What an idiot. It's unbelievable. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. Let this Christos, this Messiah, why don't you let him, this King of Israel, come down from the cross? Why? Because if he would, then we would see and believe We didn't see and believe when he raised Lazarus from the dead, walked on water, changed the natural patterns of weather in the sky, made bread come from thin air, healed people of their sicknesses and demons. We saw all those miracles and don't believe. But if he does one more, we will. Those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. Now notice Mark is dark, isn't he? In the other Gospels, we'll hear, but then there's kind of a happy ending for at least one of these criminals on the cross with them. Mark just leaves it here. Jesus starts his ministry in the company of sinful people, and he goes out in the company of sinful people. That's where Jesus lives. He keeps that kind of company, whether he's walking around or hanging on a cross. Now, if anybody in the room here is well-versed in Psalm 22, which we should be by now, because Pastor Daniel read some of it to us, you start to hear some of the language right here in this, in this Markham text. Listen to these lines, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: 18. 
They are dividing up my clothes among themselves. They're casting lots for my garments. Hmm. Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me taunt me, and they mock me, and they shake their heads at me. Hmm. Next week's passage, we're going to be on the famous cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? Why is Mark using the Old Testament Psalms like this? What's he doing? Is it just so people like me can have quizzes and tests later and pat ourselves on the back and say, ooh, I saw a connection? I don't think so. I think in the Jewish mind, we understood that the Psalms formed who we were. And the Psalms formed Jesus, a thoroughgoing Jew, all through his lifetime. He was able to look at this psalm, which is a psalm of David, and see holiness. He was able to look at this man in Psalm 22, expressing where he was at, and see divine power. Why did Jesus see that? Because he had the mind of God, which had been formed and conditioned by the word of God itself. Anybody who reads the Psalms and allows them to transform their life will very, learn, very quickly learn that Yahweh, our God, is not a God of power and weakness. He's a God of power in weakness. Jesus saw the weakness expressed in Psalm 22 and he said, yeah, or Mark, sorry, Mark is doing the connection here. He says, yeah. This is the picture of holy, divine power, even though it looks a little flip-flopped. What the world calls stupid and weak, God calls pure genius and unstoppable. It is only from the world's vantage point that something valuable appears to be lost in the cross-shaped life. It is only from the world's vantage point that Jesus here seems to have lost everything in the great battle against a great and snarling, venom-spitting demon. Jesus has lost his place of worship. He's lost his home. He's even losing his own life, his soul here. And he's handing it over to the evil one. What a fool! And that, my fellow believers, is the picture of holiness that so pervasively runs through the New Testament. Power in weakness. We say, I want weakness at church, and I want power the rest of my life. Not power in weakness, power in power, power. Power, power, power in power. That's my preference. The sheer unimaginable differentness of God is shown to us on the cross. And while everything inside of us screams, this is weak, those evildoers must be stopped. Why doesn't Jesus just come down from the cross and put an end to the suffering so then I could believe in him? And that's the question that draws us back to the first question. Why doesn't he come down from the cross? It leads us back to that question, what is holiness? It helps men and women who desire to be holy as God is holy actually know what that means. We have learned in Mark's gospel that holiness 
is less about cautiously avoiding sin and it is more about actively doing God's will. Some of you will hear me saying something that I am not saying. I am not saying that sin doesn't matter and that we shouldn't flee from it and that the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about sin. It does, a lot. But the main focus of the Gospels is to actively pursue the will of God, not to wring your hands over the effects of sin and cautiously keep yourselves segmented away from it. This is how we've understood holiness. We understand holiness as being set apart. Ooh, look at my morality. It's better than yours. I'm set apart from you, unholies. Whereas Jesus and this holiness on the cross is Holiness is your willingness to be so different than the rest of the world that even in the face of death, even death on a cross, you don't seek the power that's rightfully yours. How many of us pray and beg God to make our neighbors more sinless while we never even love them enough to speak to them? That's not Christianity, my friends, and that's not holiness, that's fear. That's fear and distrust and self-righteousness with a Jesus fish t-shirt on. That's what it is. It's fear and self-righteousness that's kind of made to look worshipful. I want to suggest to you that there is no greater picture. There is no more powerful picture of holiness in all of the entirety of the scriptures. In all of the entire world. Yes, even Mother Teresa. There is no picture of holiness greater than what you see on the cross. It is cross-shaped. Holiness is cruciform. A paraphrase of that Levitical command could easily read, you shall be cruciform because I am cruciform. And what is this cross-shaped life? It's a life that is not centered on my good behavior nearly as much as it is centered on the well-being of the other in the community. Have we not seen Jesus operating with this focus throughout his entire life? Cross-shaped living challenges the idea of my personal holiness, which is self-centered and therapeutic. If you don't do bad things, then your life will be better. And that's the number one goal that we end up teaching, a better experience of life. How many parents teach their kids that the big reason, the big reason to avoid sin is so that you can experience a better life, a more pleasurable life? Where's the focus? You. Don't sin because it's gonna, it'll make your life bad. Okay, I'm thinking about what I do so that I can get what I need and what I want and it's about me and the incurvature of the soul is so big I can't even look up and see the cross, it's me. Don't steal so you don't go to jail. Don't have extramarital sex so that you don't get diseases or unwanted pregnancies. That's why you don't do that. But from the cruciform perspective on holiness, it's about the other and the community Don't steal because it diminishes the other, and that other is a miracle that God made. A godly person doesn't diminish another miracle of God. You don't have extramarital sex because doing so is an act of self-interest. 
It's not an act of interest in the well-being of the other or the potential child or the community. Cruciformity in that respect is looking and saying, not what do I want and do I have a right to it and is it okay and does it technically forbid this specific? No, it's a way of life that says, how does this help and bless and raise up and restore the other in the community? Lastly, the cross-shaped life is saturated with the kind of love that does not have a threshold. I will love you until you cross this line. Then I have redefined love, haven't I? (laughs) I will love you until you cross this line, and then I redefine love to include bullets in your face. That's how I have to love you now, because this is what you're doing, you know, sorry. And, I, and, I, and, and, and I'm going to love you until we have a theological disagreement, and then I'm going to redefine love to mean I never talk with you again, and I don't worship with you ever again. That's, I have to make my, that's how I have to define love then. Cruciformity doesn't have those kinds of walls at which our love ends. Jesus has so many moments along the way that he could bow out. Okay, this is too much. This costs me too much. This is over the line. Okay, you guys are so crazy. I'm not putting up with this. But he does. He puts up with it and endures the greatest injustice in the history of human beings. He is the only sinless person. Cruciform love can look at the terrorist and see Christ. It can see beyond the evil face and ideology and perceive a miracle of God that is worth dying for. Did Jesus not die at the hands of terrorists and war criminals? Cruciform love sees a neighbor in need and it says, this is Christ here. My role is to serve and to love because what I am doing is serving Christ himself. Cruciform love and holiness can see all that the world calls threatening in a fellow human being and yet not fear. Knowing that by obeying God, no power can take away what actually matters. It's not possible. You look at the cross, you see the bravery of Jesus and you say, this guy was not stupid. He knew something the world doesn't know. He knew there was nothing actually being lost there while everybody hailed victory we've won we've taken his life Jesus knows you didn't take anything I lay down my life for you he lost nothing of value when he remained obedient to God even unto death hence father forgive them they don't know what they do they think they're taking something from me and they don't they're bringing pain upon themselves cruciform love empties itself as the apostle Paul says Jesus pours himself out for us. He takes on the form of a slave or a servant, even though he has the right to count his equality with God as something to be grasped. Uh, He has the right to say this is unjust, and I'm putting an end to it. But he pours that out, and he looks weak. But in his holiness, he remains obedient to God. This Philippians 2, obedient to God even unto death, even unto death on a cross, a brutal cross. When we speak of following Christ, it is the crucified Messiah that we are talking about, writes N.T. Wright. 
His death was not simply the messy bit that enables our sin to be forgiven but then can be forgotten. The cross is the surest, truest, and deepest window on the very heart and character of the living and loving God. The more we learn about the cross and all its historical and theological dimensions, the more we discover about the one in whose image we are made and hence about our own vocation to be the cross-bearing people, the people in whose lives and service the living God is made known. Be cruciform because I am cruciform says Jesus to us. Let's pray, and then I want to read a short parable. It'll take three more minutes. Jesus, help us to believe. Help us to believe not only that the cross is real and that you really did die for our sins. We know that's important, but help us to not stop there, but to also believe that the cross is the way of life that you called us to. Help us to feel the weight of not following your way so that we might repent and still find hope in you. Help us to see in your work on the cross that this world is not overcome by destruction, but through reconciliation. Not through ideals or programs or conscience or duty or responsibility or even our greatest virtue. Not through any of those things, but only through your own perfect love can we encounter our reality of this world and overcome it. Help us to believe that. Help us to live as a cross-shaped people here in Portland. Amen. This is a great story. It's really good. Here we go. In the center of a once great city, there stood a magnificent cathedral that was cared for by a kindly old priest who spent his days praying in the vestry and caring for the poor. And as a result, the priest's tireless work at the cathedral was known throughout the land. It was a true sanctuary for people. The priest welcomed all who came to his door and he gave completely without prejudice or restraint. Each stranger was to the priest a neighbor in need and therefore the incoming of Christ. His hospitality was famous and his heart was known to be pure. No one could steal from this old man for he considered no possession his own. And while thieves sometimes left that place with items that they pillaged from the sanctuary, the priest never grew concerned. He wasn't worried. He had given everything to God and he knew that these people needed such items more than the church did. Early one evening in the middle of the winter, while the priest was praying before the cross, there was a loud and ominous knock on the door. Boom, boom, boom. The priest quickly got to his feet and he went to the entrance and there he knew it was a terrible night and he reasoned that this visitor might need some shelter. But upon opening the door, he was surprised to see a terrifying demon towering over him with large eyes and dead, rotting flesh. Old man, the demon hissed, I have traveled many miles to seek your shelter. Will you welcome me in? 
Well, without hesitation, the priest bid this hideous demon welcome, and he beckoned him into the church. The evil demon stooped down and stepped across the threshold, spitting venom onto the tile floor as he went forth. In full view of the priest, the demon proceeded to tear down the various icons, icons that adorned the walls. He ripped up the fine linens that hung around the sanctuary while screaming blasphemy and curses. But during this time, the priest knelt silently on the floor. He continued in his devotions until it was time to retire for the night. Old man, cried the demon, where are you going now? Well, I'm returning home to rest, for it has been a very long day, said the kindly priest. Can I come with you? spat the demon. I'm too tired, and I'm in need of a place to lay my head. Why, of course said the priest. Come, and I will prepare a meal. On returning to his house, the priest prepared some food while the evil demon mocked the priest, and he broke the various religious artifacts that adorned the humble dwelling. The demon then ate the meal that was provided, and afterward he turned his attention to the priest. Old man, you welcomed me first into your church and then into your house, but I have one more request from you. Will you now welcome me into your heart? Why, of course, said the priest. What I have is yours. What I am is yours. Now this heartfelt response brought the demon to a standstill. For by giving everything... The priest had retained the very thing that the demon sought to take. For the demon was unable to rob him of his kindness and his hospitality, his love and his compassion. And so the great demon left in defeat, never to return. What happened to that demon after this meeting with the elderly priest is anybody's guess. Some say that although he left the place empty-handed, he received more than he ever could have imagined. And the priest? He simply ascended his stairs, got into bed, and drifted off to sleep, all the time wondering what guise his Christ would take next. The end. <laughs>